Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell, tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Thank you, Becca. And thank you, Ben, for leading our prayers before that as well. And before we, before we come to that passage, let me just take a moment just to explain our, our approach to the Bible here in our preaching series in Chalmers. We want to, it's our conviction that uh, the Bible should be preached through. So we take a book like Luke and we start at the beginning and we go all the way through to the end, chapter by chapter, uh, verse by verse. And that does a couple of things for us. One, it, it is the way that God has given us his word. And so and we believe it, it makes more sense if we do that. It's more coherent and understandable to us. The other thing it stops us doing is stops us being swayed by the world's agenda. So as hot topics come up in the world, um, we're not swayed onto always talking about those things, um, but we see what God says in his word. He sets the agenda. Um, but the other thing, and this is why I wanted to say this this morning, is when we do that, it stops us from skipping bits we find challenging. It, mean, it forces us to look at what Jesus says to us when we don't like it. And there's one or two things in this passage that instinctively in our hearts we may not like. Um, so with that in mind, let's pray as we come to this text. Oh Lord God, we believe that your word, the Bible, is inspired by you, uh, by your Holy Spirit through the author Luke. 
uh, today. And we, in that in mind, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear your voice and that you would open our hearts so that we don't just hear what we want to hear, but we hear what you're saying, that we might be obedient to you, whatever it says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had Becca read the first few verses just before our passage, verses 18 to 20, which we looked at last week, where we see that Peter, the disciple, gets it right. He's heard what other people say about Jesus, that some are saying he's John the Baptist risen from the dead, and some are saying he's Elijah, this great worker of miracles, and come back to life, or, or that one of his Israel's, he's one of Israel's great prophets of old, returned. Peter's heard all of those um, statements, but he knows. He's heard Jesus' teaching. He's seen the miracles, the calm of the storm, the driving out of demons, the healing of the sick, and the raising of the dead little girl. He's seen how Jesus can take five loaves and two fish and feed thousands and so he knows. Jesus says to him, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. He's worked it out. Jesus is the one God promised would come, the Savior Messiah, God's King, who will rescue his people, the Christ of God. Peter's right. And that's why it's so surprising what happens next, because Next, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. So in these chapters, Jesus has been revealing his identity. He's been equipping his disciples with all the information they need about him to be sent on his mission out into the world, to proclaim the good news about the Christ to the world. And so when Peter makes his great confession, and he gets it right, we're expecting Jesus to commend him, aren't we? Yeah, that's it. Well done, Peter. You've got it. Now go into all the earth and tell people about me. But that's not what happens. Verse 20, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. It's a shock, right? Why would Jesus not want them to talk about this? Isn't that kind of the point? That's what he's been training them to do, isn't it? I mean, does this mean that Jesus is kind of anti-evangelism? Well, no, that's not it, of course. He's not anti-evangelism. In fact, he's been, he has been training them to proclaim the good news about him. And at the end of Luke's gospel, he sends them out to proclaim the good news of the Christ to all the nations of the earth. Now, the point is, they're not yet ready They don't have all the information. They believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that's good, but they do not yet understand what kind of Christ he is, and in particular, what God's Christ really came to do. It's it's clear in the next few chapters as we go on that in their minds they feel, as, as most Jews would have done in their day, that the Christ was supposed to be this kind of great warrior leader, a glorious conqueror of their oppressors, the occupying Roman forces. They felt that the coming of the Christ meant imminent glory for Israel, that the nation would be restored. And having that understanding, 
means that if they were to go out and tell people now, well, they'd get it wrong. They'd only proclaim half the message. Because glory will come, but that path to glory runs through Calvary. Before the crown and the kingdom of Christ comes the cross of Christ. In the mission that Jesus is going to send his disciples on, they must not merely proclaim Christ, but Christ crucified. And so Jesus says this to them in verse 22. After telling them to tell no one, he says this, saying, the Son of Man, it's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, because we're familiar with the story, most of us, and we, we know how it ends, it's hard for us to grasp just how shocking this must have been to the, the, to the disciples. This is the first that they hear of it in Luke's Gospel. And just think about what they've seen, just in chapters 8 and chapter 9, all these astonishing things that have been done by Jesus. Put that together with the common belief that this Christ would usher in a new era of victory and glory for the people of God. That's there in their minds. And then into that, Jesus says, you need to be certain of this about the Christ. I'm going to suffer and be rejected by the religious authorities and be murdered by them before I then rise from the dead. It really is a great shock that this is what Jesus expects to happen to him. But actually, if we play close attention to Jesus' words here, we find that it's a little bit more than Jesus just sort of telling us what's going to happen to him. Did you notice that little word must in that verse, in verse 22? See, it's not the Son of Man will suffer, it's the Son of Man must suffer. So it's not merely a prediction of what's going to happen. He's revealing to us here that his suffering, his crucifixion, and then the resurrection that follows are not accidental. He's, they're not things that just sort of happen to Jesus, as if he's merely a victim of them. Now, Jesus teaches that his coming suffering is not tragic, but necessary. Why? Because the suffering of the Christ has been preordained by God. It's been prophesied in books like Isaiah, which teach that the Christ, the servant of God, will be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 teaches that the Lord will lay upon his servant the iniquity, the sins of his people. And then that God will spend his wrath upon his servant as a substitute for his people. And Isaiah 53 verse 10 says this of this Christ, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus says it must happen. It's the only way for him to fulfill the Father's plan to save his people. Through his suffering, Jesus will achieve salvation for many. It's only by his death 
that forgiveness of sins is possible. It's a death where he takes upon himself the sins of all who will trust in him and where he suffers the wrath of God upon himself in our place to atone for our sins before rising from the dead. It's only by paying for those sins there upon the cross that forgiveness can come to us by faith. Jesus says the cross must happen for men and women to be saved. And therefore, until the disciples are certain of the necessity of the cross, well, they've got to keep silent because there's no gospel to proclaim without the cross. There are lots of preachers and lots of churches out there who will speak of Christ but who reject the notion of his atoning work on the cross. And they'll claim that they have a gospel, that it's good news for others. But Jesus says that preaching Christ without his cross is not a gospel at all. There is no good news without the cross because there's no way to be saved without the cross. And this the disciples need to learn before they go out into the world to proclaim Christ. It's not merely Christ, but Christ crucified they must proclaim. We need to be certain about the cross and its necessity for salvation. The Son of Man must suffer. So that's the first thing, be certain about the cross. But Jesus doesn't stop there, and he's about to make us feel really uncomfortable. Because having taught us that the cross is the only means of salvation, he now teaches us that it's also the pattern for discipleship. That the disciples must be certain that the way of discipleship is the way of the cross. And so we come uh, to our next point, verse 23 to 27, be certain on the cost. Now, it's often the, the way in life that, that good things come at a cost. That's just a, a pattern of um, this world. So it's just an example of that. We just had our Olympics and the Paralympics going on now. And those athletes who won gold, well, they didn't, they didn't sort of just kind of get there sort of cruising to glory, sitting on the sofa watching sport and eating peanuts. It comes after years of dedication and training and sacrifice. See, glory for them was through a path of suffering. It cost them. And even for us, I know some of us are looking to shed a bit of the old lockdown lard, um, lose a few pounds. I'm really trying not to look at anyone in particular um, at the moment. Um, just by the way, if, if any dads out there, have anyone say to them you have a dad bod, uh, you say, no, 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 it's not a dad bod, it's a father figure. Okay, just a little tip for you there. Uh, but lose it, losing the extra load is not just going to happen. Okay, we know this. It takes giving up stuff, you know, no more chocolate, no more beer. And it takes adding stuff in, lots of exercise to get that figure back. It costs us. Now, that principle is there in lots of areas of life, that, that good things are costly. We're familiar with the idea of making daily sacrifices in order to gain things. 
But what Jesus says here in these verses is actually far more radical than that. Because it's not just in respect to one area of life, like, like weight loss or something like that. And it's not just about temporary gains. No, it's lose everything for me to gain eternity. I notice here as we get to verse 23 that Jesus is still speaking primarily to the 12, but it's not just addressed to them, it's to all and to anyone. Verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So this is Christian discipleship. Those who trust in the saving work of Christ's cross must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. What does that mean? Deny yourself. The word there is actually perhaps more accurately disown yourself. And there's no more radical message to our contemporary culture than this, I think. We have this love and focus on the individual self and its rights. And Jesus says, forget yourself. It's to resolve in your mind that, that your life will no longer be your own. That your life is given all to Jesus. That you choose to renounce your own desires, your own selfish desires, to serve Jesus in all things deny yourself and next he says take up your cross and follow me daily that means repeatedly it means each day now the reference to the cross here of course is not accidental by Jesus he knows what he's talking about in fact everyone there would know what he was talking about what it meant to carry a cross it's it's what the criminals did on their way to execution So the call of discipleship that Jesus makes then is is more than to to, to mere suffering, going through hardship. It's more than that. In fact, all people face that, don't they? Now, this is suffering for the sake of Christ, following in his footsteps. It's saying in your heart each day, Jesus, I will follow you today, though it may cost me everything. When we live in a world that's full of messages telling us to serve ourselves, where every advert tells us to live for ourselves, to follow our dreams, to not let anyone stand in our way, to get the most out of life and its pleasures while we can, that self-care and me-time is critical. Well, when we live in this kind of world, that call sounds pretty different, doesn't it? But Jesus says, this is what it costs to be my disciple. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, it's not just a message that our culture rails against. It's also a message that our hearts struggle to hear, isn't it? This is what I meant by there are some things that we may not want to think about in these uh, verses. This just sounds really hard, doesn't it? And Jesus knows that. 
He knows that our hearts need encouragement. They need persuading of this. And so what he does in the next few verses is he lays out three statements to convince our hearts that he is worth following in this way, that this is worth it. And you can just see that. If you look at the page, you can just see each of the next few verses begins with the word for. It's a connecting to this first statement of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. Three persuasions, three positive and negative statements to persuade us that this is the way to go. So let's look at them. First of all, verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So you need to be convinced that if you attempt to save your life, that is, if you attempt to keep control of your life, instead of handing control over to Jesus, then you'll lose everything in the end. But lose your life for Jesus, give control of your life over to him, well, and you'll you'll gain everything, you'll gain eternity, you'll save it. Second one, verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is such a profound statement by Jesus. You can have all the wealth, all the power and status, all the sexual experiences, all the possessions and pleasures that the world offers, all the popularity and praise from others. You can have all that, but what good will it do you in the end? What profit is there in those things in the end, when death comes knocking on your door. So when Jesus uses the term world here, the whole world, he's speaking of the things of this world, which are often good things, but things if we give our lives to them, we lose everything. So we've got some school-age young people here, students. For what does it profit a person if they gain the best results in their exams, the best degree at the most prestigious university, and loses or forfeits himself. Or what about those of us who are um, retired, perhaps? Let's pick that example. What does it profit a person if he gains the comforts of this world and loses or forfeits himself? Or what does it profit a person to gain all the riches of this world? I mean, this is, profit is primarily a financial term, isn't it? All the wealth that the commercial world has to offer us, the the nicest house in the street, the nicest car in the driveway, what does it profit a person if they give themselves to that and gain that, but lose lose and forfeit themselves? In the light of eternity, those things will count for nothing at all They give you nothing and pursue them in this life and they will cause you to lose everything. Yet, a life given wholly to Christ may have none of those things in this world. Indeed, you may lose wealth and lose prestige and lose popularity and you may suffer, but you will certainly gain Christ who is worth far more and you will again gain eternal glory 
which far outweighs those things. And I wonder, is your heart persuaded of that truth? Then verse 26, the third statement, and really a sober warning. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now just notice that it's not just Christ, but also Christ's words that one might be ashamed of. And it's difficult to hear Jesus say this, especially for those of us, and I include myself in this, who know that at times we have been just that, we've been ashamed. That we've refused to speak of Christ or stand up for his truth, that we've sometimes hidden away our identity as one of his followers, whether that's at work or at school or among our friends. Now for those of us who feel that, we need to be sure that Jesus here is not condemning those who sometimes fail, as we all have and we all will. There is grace for us through his death for those sins. But we mustn't shrug off the warning either. It's a real warning, and it's a real warning for the one who claims to be a follower of Jesus but who consistently refuses to acknowledge Christ to others, who, who claims that their faith is private between them and God. Jesus warns the one who never risks rejection from the world by keeping their mouth shut on matters of truth. He warns the person who will never confess that they follow Jesus to others, nor will they proclaim his gospel. That person who has lived consistently ashamed of Jesus and his word well, they can have no confidence when the day of glory arrives because they haven't denied themselves. They haven't taken up their cross and followed Jesus in this life. And so we mustn't think that this call for this life-denying obedience to Jesus is just a light matter or an optional thing. It's really not. Now, for all that, Jesus doesn't want to leave his followers in fear and doubt. He taught them to be certain of the cross, and that's his cross, but also the cross of discipleship, the cost of following him. But then as he finishes speaking with them, he points them to his glory also. To verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So some of his disciples will get to see the kingdom come. That's what he tells them here. And I think here he means the events of his resurrection and his ascension, when the kingdom comes then, and probably has in view the kingdom coming at Pentecost when the Spirit comes upon the church and the church is born. And for those who are suffering, who are going to witness the sufferings of Christ and who are going to suffer themselves, well, that's a great encouragement. But there's more encouragement to come for three disciples in particular for Peter, for James, and for John. And perhaps they're the, the ones who are struggling most with this teaching. Because Jesus is about to give them a glimpse of his glory. And as disciples of Jesus, we too, we get to witness this through their eyes so that we might be certain of glory too. And that's our third and final uh, point this morning. Verse 28 to 36. Uh, be certain on the glory. 
Now, do you remember? I don't know if this was. I don't know if this was in Scotland or not. But do you remember the Daz adverts? And they had the Daz doorstep challenge. Okay, so Shane Ritchie would turn up on your doorstep, and he challenged you to use Daz instead of regular washing powder. And the idea was that it promised clothes that were whiter than white. Um, whether that you can get clothes that are whiter than white, I'm not sure you can. But the person, the way it goes, the person has their doubts. They think, no way, of course not. But then, lo and behold, you try Daz, and uh, you, at the end, you never return to your old powder because the results are so spectacular. They're dazzling, in fact. Well, in Jesus' day, there wasn't really anything like that. There, wasn't, there was a kind of soap, but it didn't really work very well. And most of life was lived outside. It's a sort of dirty, dusty, sweaty environment in Palestine. And so white clothes, they were white once when they were first made. But then after that, everything kind of went this sort of off-white, dirty colour. So listen to verse 28 and 29. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with them Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white, white like lightning. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, as they appeared as glorified figures also, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. What are we to make of this remarkable event? Well, I'm going to suggest that it's given to us so that in the knowledge of the cross and the cost of following Jesus... We also grasp the certain glory of Jesus and those who follow him. It's for our encouragement. And Peter, when he writes later on in 2 Peter, he will mention this event as something that greatly encouraged him. We see three glorious things. Number one, we see the glory of Jesus himself. So notice the order in verse 28. It goes face before clothes. Jesus' appearance is altered. This lightning flash, dazzling whiteness comes not from external detergent, but from inside Jesus. It comes from inside out. So what's happening? Well, Luke says, verse 32, they saw his glory. It's a revealing, it's a glimpse into the true glory of Jesus as the Son of God which until now, his, I guess, his human body had somehow contained. Now, be of no doubt, then, that this cross-bound Christ is the glorious Son of God. Don't doubt that. The glory of Jesus himself. Secondly, we see the glory of Jesus' saving work. So look, too, at the figures who appear with him, Moses and Elijah. They're also in glory. They're also in their glorified bodies, and that it's these two great Old Testament figures is significant. So Moses, he, he represents the law as he gave the commandments to, of God to Israel. And Elijah, well, he represents the prophets. He's the greatest of God's spokesmen. And what do they do, these two men? Well, they come to Jesus and they speak to him about his departure. That's what we're told in uh, Verse 31. 
Now, that word is a specific word, that word departure. It's a carefully chosen word. It's the word exodus. And it's referencing then the great deliverance event in the Old Testament of where God saved his people. They speak to Jesus of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. See that? So it's as, it's as if from heaven they've, they've heard Jesus talking. They've heard Jesus saying what he said. And they want to come down and talk with Jesus about it, to discuss it with him. They talk together about his death and the deliverance that it will bring for the people of God. Now it shows this, I think, that first of all, the law and the prophets are all about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And more, that this new exodus that Jesus will, will achieve is a subject of conversation in the realms of glory. For the saints in glory, it's the thing they want to talk about. And this is quite literally what Peter and the others wake up to on the mountain. They, they see the glory of Jesus and they hear of the glory of his saving work at the cross at Jerusalem. except that the disciples are a bit slow to grasp that. You pick that up. It's a kind of comedic part of the story. Peter, he wants to sort of extend the glory experience, kind of understandably, but he, his suggestion is they make it into kind of a camping trip. Um, and Luke just tells us, look, he just didn't know what he was doing. He had no idea what he was doing. It could be that Peter just sort of risks ruining it all you know, with his foolishness, that he, he just misses the point. And so... God the Father, he graciously intervenes. You notice that third glimpse into glory comes in verse 34. And here in, the, in this, these verses, we see the surpassing glory of the Son and his word. Just as with the wilderness in Exodus, God the Father, he envelops them in, this, in his presence, in this great cloud, and they're afraid, but God speaks, verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. So what do we see? Well, we see the law and the prophets depart, and Jesus left on his own. And what do we hear? We hear the Father speaking, saying, This is my son my chosen one. Listen to him. Which means this, that the glory of the Son surpasses that of Moses and Elijah. They were great men, but there is only one Son and he is greater than all. He's the chosen one, Isaiah 42 that is, he's the Christ. He's the one God has chosen to achieve his purposes, to save people from all over the earth. And so his glory is a surpassing glory. This is a gracious encouragement for the disciples, especially when they've just heard that this one, this chosen one, is going to die a horrible death. A glimpse of Jesus' glory so that when the hard times come, they can know who it is that they're following. But not only that, and this is where we'll close, here's the final note. 
that Jesus' word is what we're to listen to. The Father is not rejecting the law and the prophets here as if, as if they no longer count, not at all. He's showing us that the Son is the one who interprets the law and the prophets correctly when he speaks of the necessity of his death. God the Father tells us that when Jesus speaks, we must listen to him, listen to what he says. And what is it that he's been saying? He's been saying what must take place, his death for, his, for sins of the world. And what he's been saying about discipleship, actually, what it looks like to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow him. Listen to him. May we listen to him on his cross and on the cost and on the glory to come. And may we follow him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we hear Jesus' teaching and we hear your voice telling us to listen to him, that's our desire. We want to listen well to what he says to us. So we ask, Lord God, that by your Spirit you would convict us of the truth of the cross and you convict us of the necessity of it, that it was the only way to be saved and it is the only way to be saved through faith in what Jesus has done. Convict us of that, we pray. But also, Lord God, give us the courage to be obedient to Jesus' call to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. That's our desire. Please help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.